Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Globally, you haven't been able to turn on TV or radio and not been told that sexual satisfaction is really important to your life, to your happiness, your relationships, everything else. What none of us are conscious of is the subtext of that was if you're a man, because those were the only solutions we've been talking about. So we haven't even had this conversation yet for women. And I think when we do, it will bring forth that awareness like, oh my God, it's not just me. It's way more fun to go through life believing in magic, isn't it? You imagine, how did I just get into this room and just have this opportunity? And do you take that opportunity when you're given that? Cindy Eckert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to have you here. Number one, you are the first pink guest that I've ever had. (laughs) And you literally are in all pink. I came representing, Rob. Did you you come up with pink before, who is the network marketing? Mary Kay. Did you come up with it before Mary Kay? (laughs) I I don't, when did Mary Kay begin? I hope that predates me, but I am kind of old. I'll tell you, um, the, the pink though, it is hard to find a picture of me as a child when I am not in pink. So I have loved pink my whole life. Uh, But pink, of course, is also really emblematic for me of, this this switch in my life from underestimated to unapologetic to really showing up exactly as who I am. Um, and so maybe there's a touch of irreverence beneath the pink as well. Who, uh, who were you before you stepped into your pinkness? If you were yeah. to describe that person, how would you describe that person? A misfit. That's what I would describe myself as. I think my whole life, you know, I had a really unusual childhood. I moved every year from the fourth grade through my senior year of high school. I like to say my dad had a really good sense of humor. <laughs> it was like a social experiment. Let's see what she does if we move her again. Um, but no, really, I think I always felt that I was that new kid. I was the new kid standing on the edge of the room really having to understand the lay of the land, um, who knew that that was setting me up perfectly for what I would ultimately go on to do in my life in terms of entrepreneurship. But misfit, I don't know that I would describe myself differently today, but, um, but definitely that's how I felt. All right. So I think that's a good place to start. You grew up ostensibly all around the world because your dad was a diplomat. Yeah. In, in what ways, and you were alluding to a few of them, but in what ways do you think that that foundation was set for the entrepreneurial drive that you have today? You get really comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You are going to be the new kid. You will not be immediately accepted. You will have to understand what the dynamic of the room is. I think all of those things are excellent skill sets for entrepreneurs, being comfortable, be, you know, feeling uncomfortable. And I think really the freedom in it for me, which only comes in hindsight, right? I certainly didn't appreciate this as a high school kid, but the the freedom was I was never defined as we are when we are in that same environment, really our whole lives. And we become the jock, the geek, the whatever, right? I'll, I'll go to the stereotypes of John Hughes and those movies. Like we really do become defined and therefore I think somewhat limited 
I got to be any one of those things at any time. I was constantly able to kind of float in. I wasn't defined by the stereotypes. And I think that's a real freedom of independent thinking, which is really important in entrepreneurship. You're going to probably try to do something that no one else has done. If you were confined by convention, you would actually talk yourself out of that. Many people who are more conventional thinkers will try to talk you out of that or tell you why you can't do it. But I think that independence of thinking um, allowed me to go there. You know, it's interesting because Tony Robbins has said many times that, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but you'll get the idea, where our desire to remain consistent with how we define ourselves, our, the identity in which we have for ourselves is one of the strongest, one of the strongest, I'm, I'm not sure what word he used, but our need to stay within those yeah. boundaries yeah. is, is so powerful. So it's a force, you, I think. Yeah. It, it's a force. Um, and listen, we can even say I'm a Democrat. So I, I I'm this, I, I, I'm a Republican and I'm a mom, right. I'm a father, you know, we have these all these different things. So I love that you, you put yourself in those, uh, in those situations. You know, we talked a little bit earlier when we were jumping on about living in Europe and I have a, uh, a seven-year-old and it's, uh, it's just a little girl. And it's interesting because we just got to Italy. So, you know, in the morning, uh, a little bus pulls up and uh, we watch her go off to the hills of Tuscany into a, oh a little school. And it's magical, but you know, she, in many ways, I'm sure was very similar to what it was like for you, because even though she's in the international school of Florence, where they speak English is the primary language, there's a ton of Italian kids. And, you know, so she's got all these Italian kids that they can speak English, but their preference is to speak Italian. So when they go off, they speak Italian and she's got to figure out how to fit in in yeah. that environment. But I believe that that is going to shape her for the future. And I think that you just described that that's kind of what you went through. I have no question it will shape her. I was at the American Overseas School of Rome and same thing, English in the classroom, Italian outside of the classroom, and really just very culturally different, right? These were kids that wanted to come probably to the States for university. And I think they figured out I was catching on when I started laughing at the jokes in Italian. I was ah. Italian wasn't, but that was the first signal. I, I did, I had this cool opportunity um, a year and a half ago to be interviewed by a performance psychologist. Microsoft did a series called Decoding Disruptors and they picked seven women and I was lucky enough to be picked in healthcare. And they said, the agreement is you have to be interviewed by a performance psychologist. And it's so funny. I can remember I went into the interview and it was all on camera. They said, what's the most insane thing you've ever done? And I said, agree to be interviewed on camera by a performance psychologist. Um, but I said to him at the end of the interview, his name is Michael Gervais. He's awesome. And I said, what's the common thread? Now you've talked to, I was toward the tail end of these interviews. So he talked to a number of the other women and he said, you're all very different people, but if there's one thing in common, you all had a lot of disruption earlier in your life. Mm. And I think in our case, we're talking about it really being physical moves into different environments. But I think that can be disruption in a variety of ways, right? For parents with kids today, how do you think about putting them into different circumstances, even if it's in the same community that you're always going to live in, how do you make sure you cause that um, ability to adapt very young? Because I think it is a foundation for success later in life. Yeah, it's funny with Michael. Um, we moved here three months ago from Hermosa Beach and he was uh, oh, my yeah. neighbor. He was my neighbor. Oh, no way. Okay, well, there but, you go. And I know when he gets under the hood, he yeah. starts pulling on some threads. So oh, yeah. um, I, I don't envy you. So I, I get that. I knew. I was like, oh no, am I going to cry? I know he's going to make me cry. <clears throat> oh, he, he made me he, cry. <laughs> and he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful soul. So you feel comfortable crying. But at the end of the day, he still, he still can Barbara Walter use for there's no That's question. Right. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you that came to mind, a buddy of mine just exited for around 250 million. It was a big, it was a big chunk of change. And we were having an, uh, a conversation about, you know, sort of how he enters different businesses. And it, what you said made me think about what he said, and I want to bring it up. 
he said, um, you know, sometimes I will intentionally jump into a business in my mind and feel it. And, you know, in my mind, I'm sort of like copying everything that the current market is doing. And then I think, how can I completely disrupt it? And how can I completely change it? Does that resonate for you? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I sold my business, right? And I got it back. And the fun was in that interim period. Now, look, it wasn't all fun. There were a lot of tears. I was very unhappy that they hadn't launched my product and everything else. But, you know, when I got over rocking in the corner and feeling sorry for myself, I started imagining, well, okay, Smarty, if you got it back, how would you do it differently? Like I had a whole plan, right, of what that would look like. And the fun was now reimagining, oh, well, if I get it back, I have to have a new playbook. What's it going to be? So that totally resonates with me. Um, I've done that actually in this business that I got back, my very own business reimagined. Oh, I love this. Okay. So we have to lay some, some basic ground uh, work for the people who are listening. So they understand your journey just a bit. We don't have to get too crazy. You founded Slate Pharmaceuticals, which redefined disrupted long acting testosterone for men. Now I'll tell you, I got on, I'm 55. I got on uh, uh, testosterone probably a year and a half ago. And the changes that I feel after being on it, I, I, it's, it's night, it, it's night and yeah. day. I am an absolutely new human being. So I completely get it. Can but, I say something about that, Rob? Can I yeah. just make a point on that? So yeah. listen, how absurd that we all think we know women go through menopause, right? We get to a place in our life, our hormones fall off a cliff and we're instantly symptomatic and we're probably mad as hell about it. So we want it fixed. Then why would we think that men don't similarly have hormonal changes over the course of life where they would be advantaged in terms of replacing that hormone? It's so funny to me that this is like, wow, really? Like it seems so obvious when you just think about why would men uniquely not have any shifts while women do? I think that there's such advantage to understanding this. And by the way, that starts at 30. That starts really at 30. So it's it's not, I mean, it's a very natural sort of part of aging, but something that we should be considering what would be enhancing for that, right? And anyway, I loved the space. It was a, my fun foray into entrepreneurship, including tackling, can you imagine me and all pink in uh, the men's sexual health world? But I, I, I can't, we're going to get in, we're going to get into that. That's, that just seems amazing. But yes, you know, if you think about it, I, I got on it because, uh, you know, I, I was listening to Joe Rogan and yeah. he said, if you want to feel better, just get on testosterone if you're a man. Right. So I went in, I, they did my blood, my numbers were... I was just short of like 400. And, you know, I said, well, you know, what's it going to do? He said, well, if, if we want to get you back to, you know, where you were when you were younger, maybe 30, uh, that number is around 900 or a thousand. Let's do it for a couple of months. See how you do within 90 days. I would say almost three months later, maybe a little bit longer. All of a sudden I went, oh my God, energy, sex drive, focus, So, I mean, the muscle you know, fat balance equation, all of it is, is a huge mood. It's <clears throat> just, it's incredible. So, I love the fact that you stepped into that space. So, I understand why you yeah. stepped into it. What was the reason that you personally went into it for men being yeah. a woman? Yeah. Well, look, I think I wanted my whole foray into entrepreneurship was about. One, why am I doing things for other people that I should be doing for myself, right? And then secondarily, it was really culture-driven. So I was driven to say, okay, I've been wildly successful in these environments in which I have been uninspired. There are other people like me. What if I were to find them, a collection of them, collection of misfits, right? There's a theme here. Put them together against a, a, a challenge and see what we could accomplish. It was a bit of... I wanted to see if I could create a culture, if you will, of performance in this industry that I thought was very conservative, very staid. Now, all right, that's the first piece of it. The second is, well, in what area? Well, 
Irish Catholic, naturally it's going to be sex (laughs) or my mom hates when I say that, but it actually was because it's a fascinating area of science right now. It's really relatively young. A lot of our understanding, a lot of the discovery. So it was a very interesting space. And I got a beat on the only, the only long acting testosterone on the market at the time. So there's another one in the US today, but this was the the pioneering product. And, um, and that was why I went into it. I was fascinated for all the reasons I said, I think these, these things are, seems so obvious to us. Like, of course, this would be beneficial to men. I have two big brothers. I was thinking about them. I was even thinking about the modality. I mean, my brothers can be sitting on the beach and I can be frying and I'm like handing them, you know, suntan lotion, like, come on, put some, put some on. And this product was a pellet. Um, it got put in, you know, four times a year. That's all it was set it and forget it. And I'm like, this is custom designed for men. So I loved the category. I loved the product was really a unique product. And then I was putting it against this really thesis. Could I put all of these misfits together um, against a mission? And what would we, what would we achieve? And that was, uh, that was Slate. All right. So now we go from Slate to Sprout. Yes. You, 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 you changed genders and you went to women, right? Well, in fairness, at the time, really the only category was men's sexual health. So I was in the space. I'm at all the conferences with the best researchers in the world. And there's the science emerging in terms of our understanding of what unlocks desire for women biologically. So at this point, there are 26 products for men, some form of a male sexual dysfunction, be the ED drugs, the testosterone, et cetera, 26 things to help men, not a single one for women. What we've been doing for women is when women said, Hey, something's changed. Like my sex drive is different. Something it's like the switch went out. We would pat them on the shoulder. We would say, oh, you're distressed. Have a glass of wine, take a bubble bath. And it's so dismissive, right? But we didn't understand scientifically. Then brain scans emerged. Brain scan imaging of women who have the condition, which has been medically characterized since the 70s. It's called HSTD. It's got the same prevalence as ED has in men. So women with HSDD versus women with just the normal ebb and flow of desire, they're totally happy with where they are or women who were happy, but something shifted, expose them to erotic cues and watch their brains in a PET scan or an MRI. They light up totally differently. This was the desire discovery. And when I was faced with, oh my gosh, what is happening for women is neurochemical. It's biological. Finally, there was a possibility of solution for women too. And that is what caused me to say, okay, I can't be one of the people helping men with 26 different ways to improve their lives when women don't have a single way to improve theirs. So I sold off my profitable business in men. I went back to zero. Everybody thought I was crazy. And I took this on. Okay. So this is really interesting because I, when the only thing I can do is compare myself in this, in this area. And I don't particularly remember having a loss of sex drive. Yeah. Okay. Right. But when the hormones kicked in, holy shit. I mean, like, so it's, it's like, it's almost like when I first went to get glasses, it's like, um, you know, I mean, I, maybe I was squinting at the blackboard in school. Yeah. I, it wasn't perfect, but then they put the glasses on. You're like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. Yeah, that's what it felt like for me. So I wonder that. I wonder if women, they're they're not entirely identifying that there's a lower drive in them, but they they're just, they don't necessarily know. It's like a, you know, you put a frog in a pot of boiling water. It yeah. doesn't even know. It's yeah, like yeah. that. Kind of, it was, is there a little bit of that where they're, where they don't know, or do they, were they hitting a point where you were working with women that were like, Oh no, there's a problem. I need to, I need to do something. Oh, I'll tell you what, it is the most common question in an OBGYN's office. It, it, they are well aware and it's causing them so much stress, right? Stress about just, you know, your sex, sort of your, your sex drive, your sexuality is a lot of your moxie of how you show up in this world, how you feel about yourself. So they not only have a loss of sense of self, but for sure 
It's causing tension in their relationships, relationships with partners they love. They love that they are attracted to. They just never think about sex. It's really like the switch goes out. They once thought about sex, they never do anymore. And it's it's just not there. So they're not initiating. They're not receptive. They don't have spontaneous thoughts or fantasies. That's really the hallmark. But really women who are treated for this condition are, I will tell you, profoundly distressed. But I do want to comment to your point. We do have learned acceptance. And what I feel really, so right over time, we adjust sight, right? If our sight starts to go away, okay, are we just like, you're not even almost aware. I would say more importantly with women, we've never discussed that this is outside of their control. So they start to turn on themselves. They're really thinking about like, oh my God, it's just me. Oh, oh no, I'm a terrible wife. I'm a terrible, oh God, if only I read 50 Shades of Grey. And what they're doing is they're (laughs) putting a burden on themselves that is actually something outside of their control. So I think it's just that the conversation around women and sex is so far behind. And what I would say is, look, for 20 years, globally, you haven't been able to turn on TV or radio and not been told that sexual satisfaction is really important to your life, to your happiness, your relationships, everything else. What none of us are conscious of is the subtext of that was if you're a man, because those were the only solutions we've been talking about. So we haven't even had this conversation yet for women. And I think when we do, it will bring forth that awareness like, oh my God, it's not just me. It's really interesting. When you think about issues in this area for a man, a man, and you think about like erectile dysfunction, well, yeah. it's pretty easy to look down there and say it ain't working. So, yes, you know, it's it's right. quite it's quite visual yes. where it isn't for women. But you know, you said something interesting, which is when they expose women to erotic cues. I, I would love to be in the uh in the uh, the test room and see like, yeah. you know, it, what was it Fabio? Like was that what was happening? Did he <laughs> come porn. out? And, <laughs> is that what it was? It was porn? It was porn in some of the studies. It was partners in some of the studies because they're still like attracted right to their partner. It's just that their brain isn't lighting up. So it's this is what's so cool. Layman's like description, right? But yeah. um, we close all the tabs in our brain to have sex. That's how I describe it. We basically, okay. what's happening in our brain is we're, we're, we're quieting it to respond to sexual cues. We're quite animalistic when we have sex. It's that we're wide aired with biologic drive to procreate, we're very animalistic. For women with this condition, what you see is their brain, there's never that deactivation, right? They're never going there. They're the women lying in bed going, oh my God, tomorrow I have to do this. I have to do this. They're, they're not quieting the information processing center of the brain to ever allow that sexual experience to take hold. It's fascinating science. Okay. So here's how I understood it from a male perspective, that as you get older, evolutionarily, there's not a reason to have that Mm. much testosterone. Is Mm. it the same for women where as they get older, just biologically, it just worked its way out where there's no reason for them to have as much either? No, this is, so this is non-hormonal which is really interesting. And it's indiscriminate across the age band. So this will surprise you. Our average patient is 36 years old. People think of this as like sort of a postmenopausal. It's actually our indication is premenopausal and it's something goes off kilter. Could it be long-term use of birth control? Possibly. Is it, you know, post-childbirth? My hormones go back to norm. My hormones actually come back to where they were before. but something's been kicked off in neurochemistry. It's about a balance between serotonin and dopamine that for a massive um, subset of women, at some point in their life goes off balance. Okay. So for you to be able to accomplish this goal that we're talking about, you had to get an FDA approval and that took six years. How do you say it? Is it Addy? Addy. Mm-hmm. Addy. Okay. And how'd you come up with that name? It, um, it's a moniker for add your interest, but I will confess that it's also <laughs> to me, it was definitionally like a woman on her own terms. 
I, I loved the character Addison on, um, on <laughs> Grace Anatomy. I liked her moxie in many ways. This was, um, that was sort of her personified, right? How are you the woman on your own damn terms? And I think your sex you know, your, your sexual health and pleasure is a big piece of that. Um, so I wanted women to have that, that option. Did you, uh, did you ever get a chance to tell her that? I did. <laughs> I did. did. I got to tell you this story. Okay. I got into a party, like who knows why I'm invited to this party that Kate Walsh is at. We're in New York city. And I'm like that weird fan, right? I'm standing sort of at the side and she's in a conversation. She can tell like, oh no, here's the super fan. And uh, she looks over at me like, can I help you? Right. <laughs> I'm, Cra- crazy I'm lady. a little awkward, right? I'm standing there a little too long. And I said, have you heard of female Viagra? And she looked at me like, are you insane? Um, you know, yeah. she just had this moment and her friend with her was a gentleman. And he's like, this is the best conversation I've, I've had all day already. So tell us more. And I came in and I said, look, I don't know if you've heard of it. I've recently gotten it. So if the media calls it, I got this product approved. It's called Addy. And I, and she said, okay. And I said, well, I named it after your character, Addison. And she started like her grin got so big. She picked up her phone. She's like, I'm calling Shonda Rhimes right now. No. <laughs> said, oh, Did you really? Let- Get on the phone. She got on. The, she called her, but she got her message. Um, so we got oh. voicemail. But yeah, how funny! And I said to her, "I'm never going to see you again and have this opportunity." So I have to tell you right now, and I hope you take it as the ultimate compliment. She's like, "For sure." <laughs> so let's let's let, okay. So let's let's think about this for a second, right? You had an idea for something. You you <clears throat> didn't give up for six years until you got yeah. the FDA approval. You name yeah. it. Addy after after uh, a Grey's Anatomy character, and then oh, you no. wind up. Then you wind you up at a party. Breaking news! I never tell that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then you wind yeah. up at a party, and she's there. So right. how how much for you is woo woo and serendipity and just you know the, the universe conspiring in your favor versus dumb luck that it happens? What's your view in that sort of? Yeah. No, I, I think, look, it, it's way more fun to go through life believing in magic, isn't it? Oh, I mean, I love it's way that. more fun to, to believe in that. And I think you, you imagine how did I just get into this room and just have this opportunity? And do you take that opportunity when you're given that? I don't know about, I think there's a lot of magic in the universe and, and there's so many degrees of, of separation, like so few degrees of separation from you and somebody else who you would like to be in conversation with. And are you going to take mm. every shot to get that? Mm. That's going to be your pull quote. I love that. So much fun going through, much more fun going through life, believing in magic. Oh, I love yeah. that. <laughs> All right. Speaking of magic, I know that this, this question has a, a second follow-up question. Uh, yeah. So let me break it into two parts. First, first part of this question is, can you take me back to the moment that you found out that Sprouts was acquired for a billion with a B. <laughs> yeah. What did that What did that feel like in your body when you got that news? Where were you? What was it like? Walk me through that. I was sitting on the set of Squawk Box with the acquirer. We were both there to announce the news, but I'm going to tell you that our deal, our deal was literally just signed. So the lawyering and all of it. So I, I guess I knew it was going to happen. Maybe it's not exactly that moment, but we went on. So the product got approved and there was a lot of biggest news story in the world in healthcare the day that this, uh, we broke through with Addy. Two days later, we announced the sale for a billion dollars. The, the then CEO of Valiant and I are sitting in the chairs at Squawk Box and it hasn't, the ink isn't, isn't dry on the papers. And literally one of the anchors is, is in her earpiece going, is it, is it done? Is it done? Is it done? And the countdown is starting. And she's like, it's done. Go. And it was really like that. The drama of this was so crazy. And we both announced it right then. We had worked all through the night. We knew we were going to do it, but you know, it's the last minute negotiations. I was going on no sleep. Um, we both had agreed to all of the final terms and the lawyers had to put the sort of final pen to paper. And, um, and they did that while we were in the seats and squawk box. All right. So now <laughs> as most entrepreneurial journeys go, the sale didn't work out, didn't work out the well, way you thought. 
as it turns out, especially in my line of work, um, it's up to you to create your own happy ending. And I'd like to say, I mean, pun intended. I was, I was, gonna, I was, I was going to say, can I, can I take the low hanging fruit? Because that was, you know, that was really. I mean, who would have thought, right. That you really have what you think is the dream come true. They bought the company. It was a two and a half billion dollar consideration, a billion in cash up front. And, and then they shelved it and they shelved it not because they're bad people, but because their business had, you know, unbelievable turmoil. Um, not long after really, you know, you, you announce a deal and it takes a while for all the formality of, of government sort of weigh in to close. And, um, and literally we closed the deal and within a week into the deal, um, this company started to fall apart and they were the darling the darling when I sold to them, they were at 260 a share. They traded down into the single digit digits because of something that they hadn't disclosed. So they were under fire. Well, their, their business was kind of burning to the ground as they knew it. And this was the last thing in. The last thing they were going to do was put attention toward this. They were going to save all of the existing business. So it literally just got put on the shelf. And I'm in there, mama bear, making noise not happy, ready to launch this product, worked so hard, so hard to get this finally for women. And, um, and then they invited me to leave. When you had that moment and you knew yeah. that it was not going the way you expected it to go, yeah. how long did you give yourself, if any, the pity party? Yeah. So... I knew I was going to, I knew that I'd been invited to leave and I had to go out and give a speech that night. Mm. And it was about the product and it was a great opportunity. And it's funny, I can still look at the photos. You know, there's a photo in a, in a paper from that night and I can see it. Like I can see it all over my face, mm. like just haggard, right? So I was so upset. By this. I mean, it's so personal, right? As an entrepreneur, this is my baby. And then I had to sort of talk myself into they, they paid you a billion dollars for this company. You're the founder. The good news is they're going to keep all your people. They're going to keep all your people. You need to step to the sidelines. You need to be the most vocal cheerleader. And you know it's in good hands. And then they fired all of my people. That's when mm. I spiraled. That's when I really went into the pity party. And I can remember, so all this happened in, in December of 2015. And I would say the beginning of 2016 was a, was a bad period. And I remember I, I went out to California. I used to live in, in um, Orange County and that's my happy place. I went out there and I walked into a Nordstrom uh, and I saw this pair of like neon pink shoes. And um, they were, they were Louboutin. Um, I never had a pair. Uh, they were called shocking pink. That was the name of the color. I turned them over. I looked at them and I, I literally had a moment and I'm like, what are you doing? Buy this pair of shoes, kick yourself in the ass and go fix it. And I really that quickly, like in the beginning of 2016, in, in April of that year, I announced the pink ceiling that I was going to do work to help other women disrupt. And I called the new CEO of that company and I said, can we have uh, breakfast? I went to New York City. I sat down. I said, give it back to me. And he said, are you kidding? <laughs> I was wearing those shoes. I said, give it back to me. And, um, and it look, it started the conversation. How does, how does it work in terms of money? Did you have to paid? Like, did you keep no. any of it? Did you have to pay it back? How does that work? Oh, Rob, let me tell you this story. So we sold it for a billion dollars in cash. They never launched it. I fought them to get it back. Uh, it ended up being a lawsuit. Uh, in exchange for dropping my lawsuit, they gave it back to me. We kept the billion dollars. And that's what I use to invest in other female disruptors today. So you wound up getting the billion dollars. Yes. Uh, billion dollars cash. We kept the cash. Um, all the shareholders and we use it today. So when I got it back, I got it back for $0 up front from the company. Now that's because I wrote a really good contract and you get smarter as you go along. I did a better deal in Sprout than I did in Slate. And it's one of my lessons, I think, for entrepreneurs, which is, you know, so many deals will have an upfront 
you'll be paid something up front and then there'll be a back end. It might be royalties, it might be milestone payments. The, that back end, how that is governed, is imperative to get right. And most of it, boilerplate language is best efforts a best efforts clause. That's what all lawyers are going to put in there. That company then says, we did, we made our best efforts to try to promote this, to do whatever. Well, there's a million excuses you can hide behind best efforts, right? So having done that in my first transaction with Slate, which was a good deal, but you then as an entrepreneur, you're always like, well, wait a minute, are those the best efforts? Because my efforts would be different. Um, when I did the Sprout deal, I had really specific performance obligations. How much money would they spend? on education? How many salespeople would they have calling on OBGYNs? And they were uh, in breach of all of those. That's what gave me my leverage. What does it feel like to have a billion dollars? <laughs> you know, I will say surreal. And I'm just a kid from upstate New York, right? Like I should never have this many zeros in my bank account. But the truth of it is the day that the cash came into the bank account. The next morning I woke up and I went to work. Mm. It's what I do. It's what I love. I think, you know, money is, is a conduit. You get to choose, is it for good or for bad? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been an unbelievable conduit to do good in terms of, I don't, I care less about the things that I can acquire than the impact I can make by helping others get there, the other misfits, the other people who are overlooked, who have big ideas, um, who aren't, you know, they don't fit in the traditional mold, helping them get to their, their dreams. That's my real joy today. You can buy anything you want. You are one of the richest women in the world right now, right? That must, you know, it's interesting because I don't have a billion. I don't know what it feels like, but I could imagine that when you give an example, I went today to a, a doctor in Italy yeah. because I noticed, I noticed I was having a little less, um, I, I wasn't hearing as well as I, uh, thought, thought. So I was thinking, uh, maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm starting to get old going deaf. I don't know what's happening. So they, they sucked a bunch of wax out of my ear. It turns out that's what it was. And I'm, uh, and yeah. I'm fine. And the, they had no interest at all in selling me anything like no hearing aids, not nothing like that. It was just a conversation. And so it got me thinking that because of the kind of medicine that's here, they just, they just do what you need and there's no incentive because docs aren't getting paid for it. So I wonder when you pull out that uh, equation out of your life where you have to work for money, and it's no longer there. Mm. And you get to wake up and work solely because it means something to you. Yeah. That has to be an incredible feeling. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I'm the weirdest person to talk to you about this because I think I've always had, maybe your relationship with money is formed early. I mean, that's just a theory. And my relationship with money is um, I will... I will not have any. I will be I will I will be poor and that if you're capable you need to go out and make some. And for me that that stays. So I still feel that uh. I still feel that need like you know I would again kick myself in the ass if I was just sitting doing nothing. Right? Like yeah. that's not a I'm I'm capable. I've got something to give back. How are you going to do it? And so I've really, I mean, in all candor, like I've struggled with this. Like I've, I've, it's been a bit daunting for me um, to get out of that mindset. I, I, I've told this story, but I, it always makes me, even me laugh. Um, you know, I work with somebody uh, who manages my money and he came in the last time, a, a little while ago and um, came into the office and he said, okay, so, uh, you live in the same house, you drive the same car. And he looked across the, the desk and he's like, and I'm pretty sure you were wearing that the last time I saw you. <laughs> I started laughing. He's like, I don't even know what to tell you at this point, um, but I hope you're using it for things that make you happy. And I think for me, it has been about like, that's really, 
you know, if I make it, how will I use it? And for me, using it, the way that brings me the most joy is actually impact. It's got the one shift is, I think the shift is there's a period of your life in which you need to prove it. Like how much do I have to prove? And then hopefully you get to a point where it's how much do I have to give? And give doesn't mean literally giving the money, but giving, what do you give of your time, of your talent, of whatever that is? You know, one of the things that I found interesting, I was uh, I was walking down the street here the other night and I passed a couple of restaurants because, you know, as you know, uh, from living in Italy, Florence is like this little, it looks like, I always tell people, they're like, what's it like? And I'm like, if yeah. you've ever seen a snow globe, it's like living in a yeah. snow globe. You know what I mean? It's got that kind <laughs> of feel. And so all these restaurants, they open at seven or eight o'clock. So usually right before they open, the staff, they're all sitting at the table and they're eating mm. together. All, everybody. And in doing my research for you, I noted that you have lunch together with your staff, yeah. just like yeah. they do here. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that question. I think it's one of our secrets to success because I didn't want death by meeting. I thought I would eliminate a lot of that. You know, I'm busy because I'm in a meeting. I'm in a meeting. I'm in a meeting. Like what is the real efficiency or productivity of that? And really I felt that everyone in the company had to be on the same page. So how would I really make sure there was complete transparency? And it was have a meal together every day, sit down, break bread, talk about the challenges in the business. Everyone knows exactly what's happening, who needs help, what we're gunning for. And it created this unbelievable alignment. Never mind, it bonded us as a family. It really did. I mean, we don't solve only business challenges um, at the at the glass table. Uh, we solve, you know, the challenges of reality TV together, <laughs> and we solve those things too. But we're we're really bonding, and I think that has it's a tradition to this day. Our table just keeps getting bigger. I when I built out my last office space, they said, "Okay, well, you're going to have to have a cafe. Like you're going to have to have little round tables." I'm like, "Oh no." We all sit at the same table and we have a table that's longer than the, you know, the last supper. Like it just keeps, it just keeps going, but it's part of who we are and it's a company tradition. And I think, I think that's missed, uh, you know, in, in cultures and companies, how important it is to just break bread together. I love this. All right. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that sort of fall into the, uh, the personal category. Um, some, some of them are going to be weird. So just roll with it. Um, What do people often get wrong about you? Oh, that I'm super extroverted. I'm actually much shyer than they would expect. What's one thing that you've not gotten to in your life that if you don't get to it, you'll have massive regret, but has nothing to do with business? A successful marriage. Mm, What an honest answer. What's something that you are currently doing? You don't love doing it. You <laughs> wish you can do less of it, but you're right now you're doing it. Oh, fundraising for others. What, what's an unusual or absurd thing that you love? It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. People would think this is crazy, but I love this. Pigs. You love pigs. I do. I have two pet pigs. People think that's absurd. Well, then I got to ask, do you eat bacon? Um, I, I don't since I've gotten them. Uh, but, you know, there are moments where there might be a little bit like in a carbonara. It's hard to pass this up. <laughs> <laughs> and I just say, I don't know it's there, but yeah. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world which I know you can. So where would it be and why? Well, I'm, I'm going to need to stay over in Florence because I really would pick that. Having spent you know, some of my childhood in Italy, I have such a special affection. There's just something about the minute you cross the border into Italy, it's loud, it's lively, it's hands waving. And there's something about that lifestyle that I think all of us need to adopt in some capacity for our own. So yeah. I'd, I'd be, I'd be bunking with you. <laughs> you got it. 
Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be the last few years, where you changed your minds and you said, you know, I used to think this way about this, but I don't think that way anymore. I mean, I think maybe around delegation in general is, is a constant struggle for me of how I work my way through, you know, what, how important it is that I get involved to that level of detail. I think that's a constant, like, I feel differently about that. What is it like to completely step out, let somebody else, you know, take the ball and then celebrate it, even though it wouldn't be the way you'd have done it um, and their own outcome in it. I guess that's mm. probably it. I mean, it's so charged today around political opinions. I, I think maybe, you know, I, I have a belief that you should be vocal about the things that are really important to you. And I guess now I sit and I think, do we have to be vocal about every single thing or could we be a little more tolerant of each other? That, I mean, that's it, right? Advocacy is so fabulous. Like advocacy in, in, in women's health, in patients' health, like in health, I've been such a proponent of that. But sometimes you're you're just yelling really loud, I think, to be heard to the exclusion of any other voices. Do you collect anything or have you collected anything? Well, I'm going to go back to rescue animals. I, I mm. definitely collect rescue animals. Um, I have like, even though I really do live on the edge of downtown, people are like, oh, that's so nice. Do you live on a farm? I'm like, no, the edge of downtown. Um, but I have a bit of a farm in my backyard um, and, uh, and some rescue dogs as well. What do people never ask you? But you wish they did. They never ask me about this. They ask me about the billion dollars. They ask me about hormones. They ask, but they never ask me this question. Can I pay for this? <laughs> I had to say that. I'm just joking. <laughs> That's never asked. That is really funny. Can I pay for this? <laughs> Can I, nobody ever asked me that. Not, any, not anymore. I think it is though around help, right? Like, what can I help you with? I think people believe at this point you're in like a different... I don't need any help. I've got it. I figured it all out. That's absolutely not true, uh, right? I'm human and uh, and every day is just a, a new day and a new struggle. And I think sometimes you get into a place where nobody ever is asking you that question in the way that they once did. Yeah. I mean, next time I go out to dinner with a billionaire, I'm going to ask if I can pay. <laughs> they, they won't know what to do. <laughs> they, it would, we'll just totally screw them Pattern up. I love interrupt. that. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be it. That'd be a pattern interrupt. Uh, okay, yeah. a couple more, a couple more quick ones. What is your guilty pleasure? It depends on the day, but but right now uh, it's probably picking up phrases from Love Island, UK. <laughs> Love Island. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible is, to me. Okay, I'm writing it down. Love it's Island, UK. UK. Of course, it has to be the UK edition. Yes, uh, it does. Where do you, um, where, where do you pick that up? My niece made me watch it. I'm just going to say that first. And uh -huh. um, it was bonding for the two of us. And of course, you know, you sit on the couch, you're three episodes in. And then I clicked on it for how many episodes? And it was like 36 episodes. I thought, there's no way I can go the distance with this. But then it became a challenge. So I guess that's my guilty pleasure right now is working my way through a season of Love Island UK. Is it too chicky or you think I'd like it? Oh no, it's it's great. It's so okay. great. There's something for everybody. <laughs> All right, last <laughs> question. Season, I'm sure I'll tell. I'll have to tell you which season I'm watching. All right, just uh, message me. I'd love to know. All right, last <laughs> question. Let's change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh man, what was the driving force to move your daughter overseas? I had it. I was in Hermosa. There's a school that was right behind where we were living. And one day we hear, get under the table, get under the table, get under the table. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And we find out that they're doing a shooter drill to prepare the kids that if a gunman were to came in, this is how they protect themselves. And then they were putting packs together that if there was, uh, if anybody got shot, they were teaching the kids how to do first aid. 
And then the Capitol was stormed. And then Black Lives Matter burned the city down. And then, and then, and then, and then. And I said, enough, enough. Mm -hmm. I want to enjoy, my life is half over. I want to enjoy my life in a in a world where people are happy and eating you know the biggest conversation we have here the only fights you have are whether or not the wine is better at that place <laughs> or the olive oil is better at that yeah. place or this is where you're going to get the best cannoli there's right. like the all of that craziness doesn't yeah. exist so yeah. there was a a moment And then uh, I watched uh, Stanley Tucci did a series uh, called Searching for Italy, Uh, which is amazing. uh And I just went, you know what? It's it's time. It's time to to make a change. And, you know, once you make a decision, then, you know, the universe will just line up. And so we got the right attorney to get the visa. And then we found the the perfect place with the great view and blah, blah, blah. And and it's been, this is our third month. La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vida. There's also um, uh, La Dolce Faniente, which is the uh, the sweetness of doing nothing. I and love sometimes, it. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's, that's hard, but sometimes it's, it's good. Yeah, it is hard, but there is like that joy, that baseline joy in Italy, that just baseline joy when you cross the border. Like I said, you feel it immediately is about, I think, living life with an attitude of gratitude. There's nothing better than that. Cindy, you're incredible. You're Thank the nice, you. you're the nicest, most fun billionaire I've ever spoken to. <laughs> <You're funny. laughs> so I, I, I love this. This was so much fun. So um, any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people listening? I hope they'll follow me at Cindy Pink CEO. And um, I like to help. So if people have particular, but they have to ask me a specific question. Can't just say like, hey. Um, I want to pick your brain. Like, what's the specific question? DM me, and uh, and I'd love to love to be helpful however I can. I love that. I usually send people the Silence of the Lambs uh, yeah. image when they ask. Like, you remember that scene in Silence of the Lambs where he yeah. like saws the guy's head off, and he's like, you know, do you remember that with Ray Liotta? I usually send yeah. them that. It's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst message ever. Can I pick yeah. your brain? No. 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 Garbage in, garbage out. Ask me a question. That's right. And a specific one. Make it specific. I love it. I promise if you ask me a specific question, I'll answer it. Cindy, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me on. What a blast. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.